Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gerke. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be taking a look at current events in the world of science and technology. Also joining us is Miss Madeline Jacobs, who will give us her perspectives on the chemical industry. In addition, you can find out just exactly what is Natron good for. All this plus the world-famous question of the week right here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Franklin. And I'm Brian Gerke. How's everyone doing? Not too bad. All right. All right. Not too shabby. Very good. Finally uh, fulfilling our promise. Do we have a promise? We to can make one up, I guess. To do not bad. I, I guess so. That's I thought we made, a, we made a pact with the American public, or at least the California public, to deliver the finest science news that there is. And damn it, if we're not doing that every week. They should shoot us. Yeah. All right. So uh, you guys enjoyed your cotton uh, underwear? You mean the Hanes nine the size? Hanes, the Hanes uh, essentials. Every day. Every day. Every day. Well, now you can enjoy cotton, which has a very special uh, gene inserted from a bacterium called Bacillus thuringiensis. Does that make my underwear not ride up? Does it make it dirty? Is that the anti-riding up gene? Uh, we could only hope that they would come up with the anti-riding up gene. Alas, they have not. This gene, in fact, is... Uh, codes for a, a particular toxin that this bacterium produces. And what this uh, toxin does is it prevents uh, these certain types of uh, pests from uh, attacking uh, the cotton. So, mm. for instance, these particular bollworms will not eat as much uh, cotton as uh, they might now that the cotton is, or is, has this new toxin gene in it. So your cotton crops will have higher yields, is that correct? Essentially, yeah. And so they've tried this out in two sort of different places, India, for one, and Arizona, and essentially that they've shown us that the crop yields are essentially up in, in both places and that the mm-hmm. pests are down. So no worms in your underpants. No worms in your underpants. Although, although for some people that's actually maybe not so good. They, I, they like that kind of thing. You know, to each his own. Uh, and we'll uh, put poison to our skin then. <laughs> if we're worms, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know. I imagine that they must, uh, they must uh, extract this toxin somehow from uh, the harvested uh, cotton, mm-hmm. but uh, no word on that in this particular article. So uh, it's certainly interesting uh, for, for those people who who like their cotton underwear, and uh, now that they have it with the toxin in it, uh, all kinds of kinkiness, I guess, can go on. Genetic engineering for better living. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but so if people want to know about this, uh, this was uh, recently reported by a, a group actually from, uh, actually two groups. One was actually from here at University of California, Berkeley, uh, this fellow Com uh, and Zilberman reported this, and uh, Carrera also reported this in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Oh, our favorite journal. PNAS. Yes. H- have you seen the uh, recent episode, uh, issue of it? There's two puppy dogs on the front cover. Two puppy dogs on the PNAS. So at first I thought it was, uh, it was uh, you know, a catalog for pets or something. Okay. <laughs> sure. Some kind of cute calendar. So do you know what temperature the universe is? Uh, 32 degrees? You'd think. Yeah. But you'd be wrong. 
In fact, we've we've known for a while that the universe is approximately 2.7 degrees Kelvin. 2.7 degrees that's, Kelvin. That's, that's okay. really pretty chilly. Cold. Yeah, that's pretty cold. It's pretty good for skin conditions, right? But uh, yeah, yeah, it keeps snow frozen. That's for sure. Mm. Probably uh, turned it into you know things like liquid, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we get liquid hydrogen and, and so on at that temperature. But so we can ski in liquid hydrogen. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah. Low friction environment. But as it turns out, just like we know that the Earth is approximately 300 degrees Kelvin, but different areas of the Earth are different temperatures. It's also the case that different parts of the universe are slightly different temperatures from one another. Mm-hmm. And by looking at what's known as the cosmic microwave background, ah. we can determine the variation in that temperature. Cosmic microwave background is, is also known as the afterglow of the Big Bang. Ah, the, the, afterglow. the afterglow yeah, of the Big Bang. The light that was, the light that was Ooh, emitted. Ah. <laughs> the last light that was emitted from the Big Bang. The last screen, so to speak. Yeah. And it has cooled off since then, down to 2.7 degrees Kelvin, plus or minus some small amount. And by ah. measuring the variations in temperature across the sky, we can pull out all kinds of information about the universe. And as of yesterday, we now know a whole lot more about the universe than we did before. Before because yesterday. The, uh, really? Because data, for the first year of data from the MAP satellite, the Microwave Anisotropy Probe satellite, has, has been released. Mm-hmm. And there's just a wealth of information that's come yeah. out of that data. So for example, we now know the age of the universe to within 1%. We know it's 13.7 billion years old, plus or minus 1% error. Wow. Pretty young. Yeah. We, we know very well what the universe is made of. It's made of 4% regular matter, 23% of this uh, mysterious dark matter, mm-hmm. and 73% of this even more mysterious dark energy. Oh, so it's non-fat then. We also wow. know very well that Whoa. the universe is not curved on large scales geometrically. It's, it's a flat geometry. So does that say anything about the, uh, the fate of the universe? It says that the universe is going to c- continue expanding forever, Okay. okay. as far as we know, unless something changes. Um, Given the most simple model, the universe will continue expanding forever, although we don't know enough about what this dark energy is to say that for sure, because mm. since we don't know what it is, we mm-hmm. can't rule out something changing in the future. But the cool thing about this experiment is that compared to the last satellite that went up, the COBE satellite, mm-hmm. the MAP satellite uh, has about 40 times the resolution of the COBE satellite, so it can see features that are 40 times smaller, which is kind of like putting on a pair of reading glasses, a pair of really good reading glasses. If you compare the two mm-hmm. all-sky maps together, see more it's, of the really, fluctuations it's really quite there. impressive. So the COBE map was once described as the face of God, so this is like looking really closely at the face of God, I suppose. His, his nostril hairs, yeah. I guess. God's <laughs> nostril hairs, what the map satellite is. So anyway, if people want to know more about that, there's lots and lots of information at the map website, map.gsfc.nasa.gov. And finally, we have some good news and bad news for guys. Okay. Well, what should we start off with first? Well, um, let's let's start with the good news. Okay, and the story comes from a recent issue of Discover Magazines, and some researchers speculate that guys get luckier as they get older. The older you get, the more lucky you just might get. Yeah, so... Lucky in the sense that... Uh, in, you're the, gonna... in the pejorative sense? <laughs> <laughs> or in the lucky sense? In the lucky sense. In the yeah. sense that you're going to guess so. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? In the it on getting sense. In the Hugh Hefner sense. Hugh Hefner sense. Okay. It turns out there may be a genetic uh, predisposition for girls to be attracted to uh, the older guy. Oh, is that right? And the whole idea is that 
they've been through it all, they've survived, that means their genes must be strong. Okay. So that could be one reason why there's this preference for older men. I see. It's not the fact that they have a lot of money and drive uh, really expensive cars. They've, uh, if they survive that long and have that money, <laughs> that means that they have the, uh, the genes, the genes to, to carry them through. To carry them through, rather than a young guy who, uh, who has a nice car and just blows it off. <laughs> so the idea is that this Blows is somehow, off, this is somehow <laughs> biologically programmed. Uh, it's very possible. And But the mad news comes from uh, UC Berkeley here. Uh, it turns out that we also have a biological clock. Men have a biological clock. Unfortunately. I didn't know I was ovulating, which was now surprising <laughs> to me. It, it started in your 20s or oh, your early wow. 20s. Okay. I, I guess we've been going downhill ever since. So what what's going down? So there's a study carried by Brenda Kanazi here at Berkeley and Weirobeck at LBL. They showed that um, they uh, when served of 22, I'm sorry, 97 healthy non-smoking males, that the uh, volume of semen produced actually goes down throughout the years. Oh, the volume. Not only that, but the uh, the motility of the sperm in it. Ah, is also going down. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, very gradual thing. Okay. So unlike women, it's, there's no, like, cutoff where there's a menopause, but for men, it's just from the early 20s and on forward. I see. But uh, presumably, if you had enough semen and... Uh Sperm, it, it could uh, compensate for that. Probably. Right. So There's just billions and billions of right. them. Right. So you just have to, I guess, uh, get lucky much more often. So if anyone wants to know more about that, you can just go to the main Berkeley website, and there's a link to this story. Well, I guess that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Ms. Madeline Jacobs will join us to tell us her perspectives on the chemical industry. So stay tuned. Enterprise continues to broaden its scope every day. What was once a province of a few scientists mixing dangerous chemicals in the lab has now expanded to include the fields of biology and nuclear physics. Covering the changes in the vast enterprise is a news magazine of the ACS called Chemical and Engineering News. While joining us today to discuss her perspectives in the field of chemistry is Ms. Madeline Jacobs. Ms. Jacobs is the editor-in-chief of CNE News and has been regarded as the most powerful woman in chemistry. Ms. Jacobs, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Frank. So first of all, I just want to let you know that uh, I actually read the magazine. It doesn't go into trash. And uh, for those listeners out there who are wondering, that's where we get a lot of our stories. First of all, could you tell us who reads this magazine? Yes. Well, first of all, of course, I'm delighted to know that you <clears throat> read the magazine and it doesn't go in the trash. 
The magazine is read by about 150,000 chemists and other people interested in chemistry and science policy. Uh-huh. So it's all of the members of the American Chemical Society and then several thousand other people who either get it through their institution, like their university or their public library, as well as a lot of people who are interested in, in just keeping abreast of chemistry. So overall, it, it probably has a... Uh, a readership of uh, somewhere in the you know couple hundred thousand range, but its actual circulation is 150,000. And I understand that uh, a lot of your readers are not actually uh, academia, but people in industry. Is that right? That's correct. In fact, two thirds of our readers work in industry, all different kinds of industries: pharmaceutical, biotechnology, drug discovery. They work at General Motors, which is actually a very large employer of chemists, and they work at Ford. They work at Motorola. They work at General Electric, Intel. So you name it, almost every large company that manufactures something probably has a chemist on its staff, and they're probably reading chemical and engineering news. Mm-hmm. And how about the government? In the government, we also have um, about 15% of our readers work in either federal, state, or local government. Of course, there are lots of laboratories in the federal government. Um, You have one out there at Berkeley. But you also have uh, laboratories that do quality control and analytical testing for the Food and Drug Administration and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and those uh, are also government agencies that employ large numbers of chemists. So one thing I really like about your magazine is uh, its objectivity, and, and what I mean is uh, you don't seem to take sides in terms of Republican or Democratic policies. Um, how do you maintain this objectivity? Well, that's probably one of the hardest things that we do, um, being objective, because I think you probably are aware that journalism is actually a very subjective field right. in that you select what you're going to write about and you select who you're going to interview. Right. So it is our policy, if we're going to do a story on a controversial subject such as global warming, uh, we would be sure that we interview people on both sides of the story. Mm-hmm. Now, just because we interview people on both sides of the story doesn't mean we would necessarily give equal weight to um, their views in mm-hmm. the sense that if you've got... Ten people in a room who are experts who believe one thing, and then you've got one person in the room who's also an expert who believes something else. Well, that one person might be right, but I think one would probably give a little more weight to the ten people who are in the mainstream. And this, of course, is what's so controversial about global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many, many more people who believe that it's actually happening, that, that humans have something to do with it. Uh, then there are the skeptics. But nonetheless, we do want to give both voices because it's right. hard to know who's right. going to be right. Right. So let me change the question a little bit. Do you ever seek to change policy, or do you simply present facts as they are? No, we're not trying to, see, to seek to influence policy. What we're trying to do is give our readers the information that they need to be intelligent citizens so that they can actually weigh in with their elected representatives. That, that's the case when we're doing a story on policy. Our goal is not to try to influence the way people think, but give them the information they need. Let them come to their own conclusions. And we do urge, I urge in my editorials, we urge people to, in fact, be good citizens and to really take their scientific knowledge and to weigh in because mm-hmm. so many decisions that are being made today have a very strong scientific and technology component to it. Right. And yet very few people in our populace today really are literate in science and technology. Ms. Jacobs, you've been working at Chemical and Engineering News for nearly 10 years now. 
what kind of perspectives have you gained, and where do you see chemistry going these days? I, of course, started my career in chemistry in 1969, and I would say the fields of chemistry have changed enormously in these past 30 years, and certainly even in the last 10 years. For one thing, chemistry is just much, much more interdisciplinary than it ever was, mm-hmm. and it, it affects every field of science now. It computers in computational chemistry, materials research, nanotechnology, uh, drug discovery is, is still very largely chemical, even uh, biological problems are being attacked from a chemical view. So that's what has really changed and quickened in the te- past 10 years, is just how all-encompassing chemistry is. We've always referred to chemistry as the central science. And one of my favorite little books is by a professor um, named Ronald Breslow at Columbia, and it's called Mm -hmm. Chemistry Today and Tomorrow, the Central Useful and Creative Science. And this book is is widely available through various um, uh, online bookstores. And, and, you know, it makes it clear that chemistry has always been very central, but now it's just, it's almost absolutely essential to um, every other field of science and vice versa. So I, I think that's the major change, and uh, we even see in the in the terrible, terrible tragedy of Colombia uh, that exploded on Saturday or disintegrated. Mm-hmm. We're not sure exactly what happened, but disintegrated as it reentered the atmosphere. We see that there are many chemical issues here. Uh, mm-hmm. There are going to be chemists, I'm sure, involved in these investigations. You know, was it the tiles? Was it the adhesives? Was it something else? Um, there's a lot of discussion about the, the debris that is being found, and is it covered with toxic chemicals? And you know, in this next issue of Chemical and Engineering News, we're going to be talking about that because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Most of the so-called toxic chemicals will have burned up on reentry into the atmosphere. I, I have this feeling that uh, Air, NASA wants people not to touch these objects because they don't, they don't want them to disappear, rather than that they're dangerous. Yeah. But that's how chemistry and chemicals get a bad name, um, from misinformation. Well, along these lines, let's talk about the media. Do you feel that they're covering the incident, or say science in general, in a responsible way, or is it being sensationalized? I think that there are some reporters who do a very good job of covering science issues, and but most, um, most parts of the United States do not have access to good science information. Uh, there are, of course, a couple of general interest magazines, and you have the wonderful New York Times, and the Washington Post, and a couple other newspapers that really devote a lot of attention to science. But most do not. They get their, they get their news from television, uh, which I think does a relatively poor job of covering science and technology. I think Nas- National Public Radio does an excellent job uh, mm-hmm. because they devote the time and resources to it. But I think most people um, remain fairly ignorant of most basic scientific and technological issues. And so the media needs to do more, but I think we as the people who are involved in communicating science also need to urge their readers. My readers are all chemists. and um, Right. I understand your, all your staff is uh, chemists, not, not journalists. Is that correct? Almost all of them are chemists. We do have some um, economists and some uh, histori- history people and people who majored in English, but almost all of them are chemists, but they're all journalists now. But we urge our readers to take responsibility for communicating to the general public, to go into the school systems and to uh, give talks to kids about 
uh, chemistry and science and technology and to talk to PTA groups and mm-hmm. to talk to mm-hmm. Brownie troops and Boy Scout troops. So, you know, that's something that I personally urge my readers to take a responsibility for communicating science to the public. It's awfully important that the public not have such a negative image uh, of the terrible things that science can do, but rather some of the positive things. Well, let's talk about the magazine. Uh, What's it like being the editor? What are some of your best moments? Well, every Thursday when we put the magazine to press is is one of the best moments of my life. (laughs) Uh Um, The best moments, well, I I think that uh, that's very hard to uh, really single out a single moment. I have a very brilliant staff of reporters. I think coming into work every morning is a high for me. So I'm I'm afraid I can't single out one single best moment. And your editorials, by the way, I I enjoy reading them a lot. Um, Do you spend a lot of time researching for that, or is it a spur-of-the-moment kind of thing? Well, I have to write one every week. So um, there's not a lot of time to do a huge amount of research, but I do, of course, do some on every editorial. they're not really spur of the moment. I, I think about them in my head for days before <laughs> I sit down before the computer. And then, of course, staring at a blank computer screen, the ultimate inspiration is the deadline. So um, you stare at that blank screen. We know we don't run blank pages in the magazine, and all of a sudden an right. idea comes forth onto the computer screen and, and ends up onto the page. But I have no lack of ideas. I mean, this week I will be mm-hmm. writing about the tragedy of Columbia and what it means to explore unknown areas and how it has always been um, a very dangerous activity. The, the people who have explored the frontiers of anything have, um, whether they were Columbus's uh, people sailing on ships or Lewis and Clark and the expedition there or the pioneers heading across country, uh, people have always given up their life to explore the unknown. And uh, sometimes we forget about how dangerous these kinds of, of things are. Right. Um, you mentioned nanotechnology earlier. Um, what other hot fields do you see coming up right now? Well, I think that certainly nanotechnology is one that's been very much hyped, but I do think that ultimately, I mean, in another 10 years, we'll start to see some real um, real things come out of nanotechnology and, and, you know, many types of new materials and optoelectronics and things that will be available as sensors. Uh, so I think that nanotechnology is an area that everybody is very interested in, and for good reasons. Uh, it's been a, had an awful lot of hype, but I think it is certainly... Um, very exciting. I think the whole area of molecular electronics, that mm-hmm. is, making electrical devices at, like the molec- at the molecular scale, that's right, those types of uh, uh, molecular motors and machines, is a very exciting area and mm-hmm. has tremendous mm-hmm. promise. I believe that the um, human genome and, and the, the, what we're learning about um, the, the proteome, which is, of course, the proteins, how they're expressed by the genes, that's the key to discovering new drugs and better health care, and that's a lot of chemistry. So I think the whole area of protein chemistry as it relates to um, you know, gene expression is a, is a hugely exciting area and is going to involve more and more people. So these are some of the uh, areas, and as you can see, they're, ex- they're extremely uh, interdisciplinary, and they involve right. physicists right. and biologists and mathematicians. So I guess you see many more to come, huh? Uh, I think that, you know, science is an endless frontier. Science is the endless frontier. Mm -hmm. There is no end to the exciting new things that lie ahead, most of which we have no idea what they are. And that's what is so exciting about science is it is unknown, um, 
but it but in many cases it is knowable and eventually uh, we we keep learning new things people keep declaring there's nothing left to learn and of course that turns out not to be the case uh, well Ms. Jacobs I guess we're running a little bit out of time so could you give us the last few words on chemistry and its public image yes I, I would I thank you for giving me that opportunity um, I think that uh, you know, chemistry has brought uh, enormous benefits to everyone's life. Uh, no one is saying that there aren't some, some negative aspects of, of uh, chemicals, but in general, chemists uh, do, you know, many things that help make our lives better. And I remember that DuPont had a slogan when I was growing up, better things for better living through mm-hmm. chemistry. Mm-hmm. I'm not being a Pollyanna here, but I do believe that um, chemistry has gotten a bum rap because it has been too often uh, associated with um, toxic chemicals, and in fact, um, you know, not every chemical is toxic. And sometimes I think that headline writers think that tox- toxic chemical is one word, not two. Oh, I guess we forget that we're actually made of chemicals as well. That's right. I mean, everything on this earth is made up of chemicals, and um, I, I really, you know, um, of course, I'm, I'm a very strong believer that there needs to be corporate responsibility, and that we need to use our our chemicals wisely and uh, not pollute the environment. But I do think that, uh, you know, we need to also remember that our standard of living today is, is, has been made possible to a good extent by the work of um, many, many chemists out throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Well, Ms. Jacobs, I just want to thank you for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And that was Ms. Madeline Jacobs, Editor-in-Chief of Chemical and Engineering Magazine, we just talked to. And if you want to know the latest in chemistry and chemical industry, you can go to the online edition of Chemical and Engineering News. The website is pubs, P-U-B-S dot A-C-S dot org backslash C-E-N. If you go to the second half of the page, you'll see some links to fun stuff, and these include things as What's That Critter? Well, you're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, find out why those mummies love Natron. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, and now here is the Jamaican Cletus with the answer to last week's question of the week. Yeah, so man, so I tell my brothers, I tell them every time they come around here, what is the natron good for, they ask me. So I tell them, hey man, 
you go to the Nile, the Nile in Egypt, right? And they got all this kind of natron floating around. And every time they look at the thing, they go, what are you going to use this thing for, man? So I tell them, I tell them, I say, son, son, use it to embalm the dead. And that is what the natron's good for. He's also a football player, man. I think somebody is in denial. Get it? Denial. <laughs> and this week's question of the week, what is the Foucault pendulum? If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us here at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just swing a little more. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Franklin. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. <laughs> <laughs>